workload is so great uh, that you decided to choose uh, to spend your um, Sunday morning with us. Thank you for being here. I believe I know everybody uh, that is with us, but if you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm the lead pastor here. Even if you're just joining us uh, on our webcast, welcome. Happy Mother's Day to our mothers. Uh, we love you um, and we appreciate you being here with us. Uh, and we hope uh, that you have uh, a blessed uh, morning with us together. There's a couple of things that I want to keep you um, in the loop regarding um, that are coming up really over the next week. Uh, two things in particular this week um, is uh, on the 11th this week uh, here at the church, uh, we are having our, our membership um, our membership class uh, here at the church at 630. Pastor Franklin is leading that. If you would like to learn more about what it means to be involved um, as a member in our church. As I mentioned uh, previously, membership um, kind of serves two roles. Um, well, it serves a myriad of roles, but the primary two, number one is just um, becoming a, a more, uh, going kind of deeper with your relationship with the church. And sometimes people bristle against like formalizing things, um, but it does give you that opportunity to really, um, really invest in the mission of the church and by doing that the the second benefit i suppose or reason that we we believe membership is important is we are what we call um for all by all uh, accounts and purposes we are uh driven and and governed by our members as a church so every year including this coming sunday um we we give the membership of the opportunity and the responsibility uh, to make important decisions such as um, electing the members of our governing board or what we call our local board of administration. Our members also um, vote um, regarding the, uh, the proposed budget that the board is bringing as a recommendation. Um, really, and, and what will be coming up um, once we have identified a pastoral candidate, um, the, the membership votes uh, to elect that position uh, to serve. So membership, especially in this season that we're in, uh, is definitely important. And while we value um, every person that comes through our doors who is involved, and we don't have tiers in the sense of like, if you're not a member, you're not considered less than, but from a formal, um, I, I would go as far as to say even a legal uh, perspective, membership does by necessity uh, carry some weight. And so if you'd like to be part of that, or if you're already a member and you'd just like to learn a little bit more about what that means and what that looks like, and even a little bit about what our history and what we believe um, as Wesleyans, as part of our denomination that we belong to, um, please see me or Pastor Franklin, um, who I believe is in the fellowship hall uh, with Sarah and Addie for Sarah's first Mother's Day. Make sure you congratulate her for that. That is a beautiful thing that I'm sure they will always remember. Uh, so that is coming up. So membership is this week, and then next week, just keep that in mind. It's going to be immediately following service. We're going to have some munchies and whatnot um, available for you um, that you can um, can avoid being hangry uh, because we know we, we're going to try to – we want always try to be very uh, aware of your time, and we appreciate that. So immediately following service, we'll kind of give you a five-minute break. You can grab some munchies and then join us for our – for our church uh, meeting or what we sometimes call the local church conference next Sunday, immediately following worship. Uh, Jim Jock is going to be coming. He's got an announcement. Um, and then we're going to be, excuse me, moving into our uh, scripture reading and teaching time following that. Thanks, Jim.
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, about a week and a half ago, we interviewed a candidate. Uh, the board did. Uh, we decided to keep looking, so that progress, you know, is continuing. Um, you know, you, you always hope to, you know, have a handful of candidate candidates to look at, and certainly that is our hope. Um, and with that, we also wanted to have a time where we could come together and to pray over the situation of a, of a transition and looking for a new pastor. So we're going to do that on, on Wednesday night, May 18th, at 6.30. So that's not this Wednesday coming up. It's the week after. Um, just a time that we can come together and to pray over, over this matter specifically. Um, you know, that was uh, brought up by a member of the board. I think it was great advice that we, that we do that this week and have some focused prayers on it. And with that, the, the other announcement that was up there is uh, we appreciate you continuing to give your tithes and offerings to support the operations of the church. We certainly couldn't keep the lights on and do what we do um, without your faithful giving. And so there are ways that you can give in person. You can drop either in the boxes at the entrances or exits. Uh, there's one outside as well as giving online uh, at our website or even by text in our in our Thank you for your continued uh, support of the church and your faithfulness. Warren, I believe you are our reader this morning, so if you want to make your way up here, we're, we're pulling double duty a little bit on a couple of positions today, so thank you for both hats that you're wearing. Uh, that's fair. That's what happens when you're married to the person in charge of organizing. If you would like, by the way, this is just to decide, if you would be willing to, to be a part of the scripture reading, we'd love to have you be a part of that. This is one of those things that, that we kind of almost stumbled into, and it's become one of my favorite things to empower the, the members and the attendees of the church uh, to, to be reading. So anyways, now you can read, but thank you. Just see me after. All right. Or see Jessica, because she's downstairs yeah, with she's them right now. Probably downstairs with the kids right now. So I'm reading from Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, and it uh, looks like I'm using the NIV version, which I guess is what I am. <laughs> I don't know. So we're starting at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, Someone might die. So for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, we are continuing uh, with our teaching series uh, that we've been calling All Things New. And All Things New is, um, in part, at very least, a, a, uh, a look back at the impact that the resurrection of Jesus had on individuals and groups in, uh, in the scriptures. And so we've been going through uh, the last few weeks looking at um, some pivotal stories. We began on Easter Sunday um, with Jesus and his encounter uh, with a woman named Mary Magdalene and, and how Jesus continued to rewrite her story. 
And then we shifted uh, from Mary to disciples that Jesus encountered on the road to Emmaus. And then last week, uh, we encountered Jesus, um, Jesus meeting with and restoring one of his core followers, a man named Peter, um, back into the fold. And we talked about, um, we, this has been, uh, that last week was about rewriting your story and how failure doesn't have to define you, that, that in the eyes of God, that we are not defined by our failures, we are defined by who Jesus says that we are. And so as we continue to examine and consider these stories about the difference that the resurrected Jesus made, both on individuals and characters in the story of Scripture, but in our lives, we're going to look at the story of a man who has a, a, an interesting relationship, I think, with people in the church because he is one of those, one of those well-known people, but one that we have, I think, given an inadequate amount of focus because when we think of him, we think of somebody who is defined by his failure rather than his faithfulness. Uh, so his primary story is actually found in the book of John, chapter 20. We're also going to spend a little bit of time in Luke 24. And today we're going to be talking about the disciple, the follower of Jesus, named Thomas. And Thomas, if you know this name, you likely know him not just by his name, but by the adjective that we almost every time put in front of Thomas. Thomas has been a victim in my mind, and now this is a bit of a hyperbole, but Thomas, I believe, has been the victim of a smear campaign. Because Thomas is somebody that when we are looking for somebody to identify as a, an inadequate follower of Jesus, as somebody who lacks the faith to believe in Jesus, we every time point to this guy, doubting and I think that has to lead to a conversation about what does it mean to have faith? Because there is a, a bit of a, a, a struggle. I say a bit of it. I think our, our Christ, the Christian culture in America is wrestling with this very question of what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be a people who believes in Jesus? And what what has been the way, I think, for a couple of generations, if not two or three, uh, there has been this, what we call blind faith. This, this faith that says, well, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And so that is all that it has taken for some people. And I'm not suggesting that that is, uh, that is bad or wrong, but it does not take much to see that there has been a shift where whether it is whether it is driven by doubt or just driven by a genuine desire to question to analyze to examine to find truth we have embraced over my generation and I'm a millennial and I think it's developed even more so with Gen Z 
And I think Gen Xers were the same way. I think Gen Xers pretty much pioneered the question everything, including authority, especially authority. And what has, what has happened quite often is we invoke the name of Thomas to suggest that the problem in these people are the same problem in Thomas, and both of them have become the definition of a bad Christian. And in our modern religious, American religious context at least, because we, I think it's important that we understand that trends in, maybe not American, maybe uh, Western Christianity might be, because this is true in Canada and it's likely true in England and places like that that are uh, white and English um, dominant in their faith. Um, but in these worlds, doubt has become a four-letter word. It is the one thing that we want to be accused of the least. In fact, in some circles, doubt is given as the reason for why somebody who gets sick dies, not because necessarily of their doubt, but by because of the doubt or lack of faith of the people around them. And this this dangerous mindset impacts us because it challenges us and it forces us in some ways, if we even embrace this way of thinking, that the one with a questioning mind who comes to us with, with honest doubt, because you'll notice, and maybe, maybe you haven't noticed it, but I'm, as a, as a pastor, and as a pastor who's been pretty open with his struggles with doubt, and fear and anxiety and reservations and my own skepticism, uh, people tend to come to me with their own questions. And with almost to a person, the questions, though sometimes can be worded harshly and sometimes can be very much couched in language that, that have, a, have a, a clear, I don't believe this type of language, but in their heart of hearts, there is a desire to find truth. There is a desire to see truth and to embrace truth wherever we find it. And when we look at somebody like Thomas, when we embrace this story and we really get into his mindset and into their world, I think what we may start to find is that Thomas's story, number one, Thomas's story is not all that different than any of the other followers of Jesus, but we'll also discover that when you wrestle with honest doubt, when you wrestle with, with real questions and even deal, wrestle in, a, in an open way with people who are also seeking that when you do that, you open up the opportunity to experience the truest depth of faith. And on the inverse, for many of us, unless you wrestle with honest doubt, because I am convinced that those who claim blind faith, it's not that they have questions. It's not that they don't have questions. It's not that they don't have doubt. It's that they're trying to ignore those, hoping that they go away. And for many of us, unless you wrestle with those doubts, there is a reality that you may not experience the truest depth 
of your faith because it is in wrestling with those questions, it is engaging in those doubts that allows you to develop a vibrant, alive faith. So let's start by looking at the story of the resurrection of Jesus, which is going to begin in Luke 24, because I want to highlight something in particular that I think we often forget. And so in in Luke 24, we're going to begin, um, and we're going to meet the followers of Jesus on the day of the resurrection. And we're going to see the impact of doubt on the faith of the people and see how doubt is not the end of faith, but often is only the beginning. So just as a little bit of a background before we read of this passage, Thomas is a, a, a character with very little screen time, if you will. Um, he is only mentioned or evidenced in 12 verses in all four Gospels. Uh, and most of the vast majority of them are in John chapter 20, which is Jesus and Thomas's encounter um, together. But so what we know at this point is we know that, that in Luke 24, we know that the people who followed Jesus are terrified. We're just kind of retracing our steps to where we got to here. That Jesus has been executed and that there is a significant amount of fear among his followers that, that they would be next. And so these men and women are hidden in a locked upper room from Friday evening into that first day of the week, into that first Sunday. And then these women, now there are differing accounts in the scriptures, whether it was one or three or four, uh, but what we know is women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus and adorn him for proper burial rituals. They're bringing spices and different things that can fr- bring a better fragrance to the body as it is in there. Because unlike today, where you can have single-use uh, coffins, if you will, or that's what they are, um, they had family tombs that you would have to go back in and you'd have spaces for different family members. And so you would actually go in and you would, you would place the, the body of your deceased loved one and you would, you would wrap them in, in, in uh, sheets and you would bring oils and spices and, and fragrances to, of course, try to mask the smell because you would likely have to go back in there when another family member would pass. And so this was a, a ritual that is often denied to people who are executed, particularly those who are crucified. Typically, crucifixion victims, as we understand it, were not given any rites of burial. It took a rich follower of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea to convince the Romans to give him the body of Jesus. And it's entirely possible that Joseph had to bribe the officials in order to get that. And so in the first day of that week, they get that report of the empty tomb. And we're talking about doubts here. One of the things that I get all the time as a pastor from, from skeptics or from atheists in general, will, they will say, well, of course the disciples believed that Jesus raised from the dead. Ancient people were much more superstitious. And they're not entirely wrong. Because what 
what was very common in the first century, not just in Israel, but it was very common, and it still was common throughout the centuries between then and now. There was a higher level of superstition, but one thing never seemed to be embraced or believed. They would believe that ghosts exist. In fact, you see several times throughout the scriptures that Jesus is doing something impossible, and their first thought is, it's a ghost. So there is some superstition here. But it was not a modern invention, the idea that dead people, when they die, stay dead. This is not a modern, mo- uh, this is not a marvel of modern science. This is not a, a new discovery. This was, from the very beginning to today, was a generally accepted thing that very few people would say, yes, I believe when somebody dies, they stay dead. And so in this day, the idea of a man who died to be raised from the dead, especially somebody who's not just dead of natural causes, like it's, it's, not, the, it's not unheard of to have somebody who was a presumed dead come back to life or come back to consciousness. And it's even been said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It's like, well, you got to remember, Romans were good at several things, but primarily one of them was inflicting pain, but more importantly, making sure the people they want dead die. Jesus would not have been removed from the tomb if he was not dead. Or would, would not have been removed from the cross, sorry, if he was not dead. The Romans were good at that. Now, again, you're allowed to have the doubt. Maybe you're here and you're like, eh, maybe that's exactly what happened. And I'm not here to tell you that you have to buy this just because I'm telling you this. But it's important to understand this because when the reports from the women, the women see angels who tell them that Jesus is alive and they run back to the upper room. And in verse 11, they tell the disciples what had happened. And in verse 11, we see, but the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they did not believe it. And I think before we can have any conversation about one particular follower of Jesus who has been dubbed with the moniker of doubter, it's important to know that to a person, according to Luke, to a person, each of the 11 remaining followers of Jesus after Judas's suicide did not believe the account that Jesus was Because today, the idea of Jesus' empty tomb is good news to us. It is great news. It is the best news. But to them, when they hear this, an empty tomb was not... It's it's Occam's razor is the the term that you might have heard before. Occam's razor just says the, the the simplest reasoning, the simplest explanation is likely the real explanation. And so, when you go to a tomb of a convicted uh, criminal who there had been Roman guards protecting, the assumption would have been somebody paid off the guards and stole the body. It was a grave robbery that they were expecting. That's what, that's what Mary Magdalene thought. We talked about that just a few weeks back. This is what it meant. This is what they were expecting. And so hearing the story sounds like somebody is lying or somebody's on something, or somebody is playing a trick on them. And even though 
the women had seen an angel and they had heard the good news, they still presumed that Jesus was dead, but relocated. But just a few verses later, in starting in verse 36, we see that they are still in that upper room. And the story from Emmaus that Pastor Franklin preached on just a couple weeks ago is, is being told to the disciples in verse, uh, that ends in verse 35. And as they're hearing this story, we see that Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And this is, again, this is an important thing. We've talked about the superstition. Here it is. They were terrified. They were frightened and startled, thinking they were seeing a ghost. So we're talking about people who were superstitious and sure. Absolutely. But notice their superstition was not, hey, Jesus is alive. Their superstition said, hey, there's a ghost in front of me. That's terrifying. And so Jesus knows this. He hears this. And he knows that they do not get what is going on. So he tells them, he asks, why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. This is pretty important. It goes on in verse 40. Luke says, as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is important because I think, again, we can give Thomas a lot of grief without remembering that Jesus offered the disciples who were present the very same courtesy. And it wasn't until this encounter when he said, reach out, touch me, see that your superstitions are wrong. I am not a ghost, but I am alive because ghosts don't have bodies. Ghosts don't take on corporeal form. And that's when we learn in John chapter 20 that there was one person missing, the man of the hour. And we see in verse 24 of John chapter 20, we see that one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, or some of your translations may say Didymus, uh, which is just a translation. One is just a transliteration, one is a direct translation. So we don't know if Tom, who Thomas's twin was or if it was kind of a, a just a nickname because he reminded somebody of somebody or did a lot together. But we know uh, that he was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord, but we hear his response. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand and wound in his side. And I'm, I'm getting a mental picture. And again, this is just my own creative license, but I am... I am imagining the disciples excitedly explaining to Thomas that they have seen Jesus. And I'm also getting this idea of like, okay, you guys are insane, or you guys, you saw a ghost. 
and I'm hearing the disciples saying, no, Jesus was here, and he showed his wounds, and he told us we could touch him, and we did. And we know it was him. And Thomas is like, listen, that's great for you. I appreciate that you did that. And that's what changed. Because don't forget, what changed it for the other disciples was that Jesus let them touch him. Or at least offered the opportunity. And Thomas is telling them, it's not good enough that you're telling me this. I need to see this. And we can't forget in this story how important this element is. Like we read just moments ago in Luke 24, this story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. This was the way that it was. Thomas wasn't alone in his doubt. Thomas wasn't coming into this with this stoic, like, well, I mean, that's fine for you, but I, I don't believe it. I, I think this is a guy that wants to believe. This is a guy that had given his whole life to Jesus, and if Jesus was alive, he had to know it, because if Jesus was alive, it changed everything. It changed the course of human history. For Thomas, he was unwilling to settle for second-hand faith. You know, second-hand faith, I think, is something that a lot of us are familiar with. I don't know that any of us have had physical, literal encounters with Jesus. And, and it is a hard thing for us to wrap our mind around what Jesus was willing to do for his followers. And so even though many of us have not had that, that literal encounter with Jesus, there are those of us here that will be able to say, myself included, I have had real encounters with God that I cannot maybe fully explain but I truly believe and have absolutely changed and transformed who I am. But by that same token, there are so many in churches across the country that identify as Christian in the sense of when they receive a census form, they catch Christian. Or on another type of survey, when asked what religion they are, choose Christian. And for some of them, it's a matter of tradition. It's less and less so, which has created a lot of, a lot of consternation and upset people that people are, are walking away from churches. Um, but when you realize that so many of, of those folks who were part of churches because of the cultural expectation to it also tended to be the kind of person that never had that encounter with Jesus but it inherited some type of tradition. And when push came to shove, when they realized that they had no relationship with Jesus, they decided they weren't going to play the game anymore. And it's so critical that we understand that these decisions aren't necessarily 
what they appear on the surface. And we may see, and it's still suggested that like there are parts of the country that are more Christian than others, but generally speaking, you look at those places, and again, they tend to be the places that it's still culturally expected of them. And so there are still so many people who would qualify themselves as Christian, but still never had the experience with Jesus. And when you couple that with the absolute rejection of any type of doubt or any type of questioning, when when sincere Oh, let's be, I'll go even further. I was going to say when sincere questioning, but when any questioning, if somebody comes to me, I've had people come to me and they, they've thought they've brought this like gotcha moment, this aha moment. Um, and generally speaking, it's not nearly the aha moment because it, not because of Christianity, just because like most aha moments, most gotcha moments aren't nearly as unique as most people think they are. That's all it is. Like, I've had people come to me and it's like, ah, I got you there, buddy. And it's like, wait, do you think you just treaded new ground? Nah, no, this is something I've heard before. Let's talk about it. Um, but so peop- even, but we, even when they come to me with insincere questions like that, we too far too often in our churches treat those things as ugly and sinful, and in some churches, those questions are treated as blasphemy. They're, they're shameful, they're sinful, and they're attacks on God, and therefore they must not be tolerated. And we've created an image of faithful Christianity where the best Christians ask no questions and have no reservations. Because God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And the tragedy tends to be is that I have seen far too many people with that type of faith. That when they enter crisis groups, when things start to unravel as life tends to do, it is these folks that have no healthy mechanism for dealing with these questions and doubts that if you don't believe me, they will rise up. They will come there. And if we demonize questions, their only safe spaces are going to be with those who have already rejected Jesus or any belief in any supernatural at all. We can't be surprised then that people leave our churches that only, that deliver the message that the only type of true believer that are welcome here are the ones with no questions. And further, we cannot we cannot be surprised that when they seek out answers, and they will, that if they won't be able to wrestle with those doubts and fears and questions here, they will find somebody else to answer. And so here is this man, this, this man named Thomas, who is in that place, who is hearing a story, a report of a a man who is dead and is alive again. A man who had given his whole life to this cause. And yet, even though Jesus said that he would die and come back, the reality still was that this doesn't happen. That dead people don't come back to life. 
And he knew, he understood that if this story was true, it demanded a response. If this story was true, it had the power to change everything. And so wrestling with these, wrestling with this, was important so that he could not push through, but engage with those doubts and come out the other side. And Thomas was asking for more. And we see in verse 26 that Jesus meets him where he was at. Verse 26 says, eight days later. And I think this is just to throw this in there. Eight days is such an important uh, term throughout all of the scriptures because it represents something new. It represents new creation. There's there's a reason why Jesus in uh, uh, that there's a reason why Jesus raised on the first day, which you could say is the eighth day, because creation is one to seven. Eight is the indicative of something new. And if you see throughout all of this, whether it's in weirdly enough the book of Leviticus, if you had to go away to be ritu- uh, ritually pure, you were welcome back on the eighth day. The eighth day is it's an overlooked number, but it comes up again and again and again and again throughout all of Scripture. And so I don't think this is an accident here. I don't think John is accidentally invoking the number eight. He is suggesting, as would have been with the resurrection of Jesus, as it would have been on the first day of new creation, or it would have been on the first day you were welcomed back into the camp, that eighth day mattered because it meant something new. Something was restored. Something was renewed. Something was made new. And on that eighth day, Jesus appeared. They were behind locked doors, and suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing with them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wounds in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. Jesus offered Thomas the very same thing he had offered to the other disciples. The very same thing he was willing to do for them, he did for Thomas. And he welcomed He did not rebuke or condemn Thomas's doubt, but instead he gave Thomas exactly what he needed. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see him and I see the wounds in his hands. It's the only way. There is no other way. And Jesus says, here, nothing is stopping you. Jesus met Thomas at the point of his greatest doubt and gave him exactly what he needed. And it was that interaction that led Thomas to exclaim, my Lord and my God. He did not actually, from the text at very least, does not appear to have actually reached out and touched him at all. But that encounter at that moment was enough to solidify his faith through his doubt. 
and changed the trajectory of his life forever. Because according to Christian tradition, Thomas was one of the disciples of Jesus that gave his life the cause. According to Christian tradition, all but one uh, gave their life as a martyr for Jesus. And Thomas is interesting because according to Christian tradition, Thomas went the furthest for Jesus, as far as miles go, traveled the furthest, and he was so committed to bringing the good news of the resurrected Christ to people that when he was confronted and captured and told to renounce his faith, he refused, saying, I would never renounce my Lord and my God. And at that, according, again, to tradition, a spear was driven through his body. It is a tragedy that Thomas has become defined by his doubt. Because the Jesus that Thomas doubted is the, is the Jesus that Thomas was willing to die for. His story must not be defined and boiled down by his doubt. Because if we do that to him, then we should call doubting Peter, doubting John, doubting Bartholomew, and doubting Nathaniel. Because each of these men and each of the women who followed wrestled with this doubt is that Jesus met them at their point of greatest need. And on the other side of doubt, Thomas, of course, but each of those who followed found faith stronger than they could have imagined on the other side of their doubt. Some of us this morning are, are in this place and we are wrestling with questions and doubts. And it is entirely possible that you're coming through this and, and this gave you no answers. But if there's one thing I hope that you will take from this, and I, there's two things, but I want to talk to the people with who are struggling with questions and doubts. My hope for you is that you can know and hear that your questions are not a problem. That your doubts don't have to keep you, number one, from, from a, a, a body of Christ, from a church, but even more so to keep you from Jesus. Because as Jesus reminds us again and again, that he's willing and able to meet us even in our doubt, even through our doubt. And so keep asking your questions. As long as I have a say in it, this will be a safe place for you to bring those questions and those doubts. And I'll tell you up front, I am not afraid to say, you know, I don't know. But I will see if I can find out. And I'm also willing to say, I don't know if there's a way to know. But so long as I have a say in it, your questions and your doubts are safe here. And that second challenge that I have is for those people of faith who may receive these questions and these doubts. 
And these questions may make you uncomfortable and they may make you feel uneasy. But my hope for you is that you would receive these questions, that you would hear these questions and these doubts, and instead of pushing away or instead of getting defensive, being willing to sit with and love on those and having a dialogue, not just to try to convince them, not just to try to have that gotcha moment, but being the body of Christ as the church is called, for some people, what they need the most is to see Jesus in As we close the service today, I want to invite you to, to sing with us. Regardless of where you stand, regardless of if you see yourself as a skeptic or a doubter, one with questions, or somebody with rock-solid faith, This song is still for you. It's a song that I, I wrestle with almost every time I sing it because it's a willingness to allow Jesus to make a difference in my life, to change me, to reveal himself to me. So if you're a person with questions, my hope is, is that Jesus will be so real to you this morning and that even through and with your doubts and questions, we can sit and talk and demonstrate our love for you. This song's called More Like Jesus. us thank you that you are not angered or afraid of our questions but that you meet us where we are and you give us what we need and so God I pray that we would be like Jesus when we encounter those with that sense of doubt that we would be that safe place to be able to to dialogue and to listen. God, may we listen. And may the same love of Jesus that he had for the ten disciples he met first and for his love for his beloved disciple Thomas, God, may we receive that love and may we pass that love along.